Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. Head over to canmedevents.com now to learn all about our CanMed 2022 event, which will take place May 3rd through 5th at the Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. This three-day event begins with a full-day medical practicum led by Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, the practicum's originator, as well as Dr. Dustin Sulak, Dr. Kevin Spellman, and Eloise Thiessen. Each of the presenters will share the latest research as well as their clinical experience and practice guidelines related to cannabinoid therapeutics. A new section of this eight-hour course is dedicated to reviewing different types of extractions, products, and optimal dosing for cannabinoid therapeutics. After that, we have two full days of presentations and panel discussions covering the latest research in the cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing taking place May 4th and 5th. The full schedule is up at canmedevents.com. You'll notice that each of the CanMed focus areas are anchored by a keynote presenter. Dr. Ethan Russo for science, Seth Crawford for cultivation, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein for medicine, and Grace Bandong for safety testing. Each of our keynotes, as well as many of our presenters and panelists, were guests on the podcast, and you can listen to all our previous episodes at canmedevents.com slash coffee talk. While you're at canmedevents.com, you can also watch video presentations and panel discussions from all of our previous CanMed events in our CanMed video archive. Presentations include CanMed 2022 keynotes Dr. Rousseau, Seth Crawford, and Dr. Goldstein, as well as Professor Raphael Mishulam, David Meary, Marcus Roggin, Zamir Punja, Stacy Gruber, and many, many more. As you can tell, we have a lot going on at canmedevents.com, and the best way to keep up with everything is to sign up for email alerts using the simple form in the page footer or on the pop-up form that you'll find at canmedevents.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Just look for CanMed Events. This episode, we welcome back Michael Levinson a criminal and defense attorney with 20 years of experience representing people in all areas of the cannabis industry, including patients, cultivators, retailers, and healthcare providers. We catch up on new developments in cannabis law since last we spoke, including Ryan's Law, which requires California hospitals providing palliative care allow terminally ill patients use cannabis medicine. We get into the likely reason Ryan's law is restricted to terminally ill patients, as well as what hospitals and providers will have to do to accommodate this new requirement. We also explore the possibility that other states will follow California's lead and enact requirements that are similar to Ryan's law. We also talk about restrictions that prevent healthcare providers from recommending, developing, and endorsing cannabis-based therapeutics, the likelihood that the Moore Act, which is a federal legalization bill, will become law. And finally, we talk about what a more realistic federal legalization path might look like. I guess that last one's a bit of a spoiler for Michael's thoughts on the Moore Act. Before we get to my conversation with Michael, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, the Cannabis Center of Excellence. The Virtual Cannabis Center of Excellence is a registered 501c3 nonprofit organization that conducts citizen science-focused population studies and programs in the areas of community engagement, medical cannabis, adult use cannabis, and social justice in the cannabis industry. The group is currently conducting a survey of healthcare providers' knowledge, attitudes, and practices related to medical cannabis. If you are a healthcare provider, please take this 12-minute survey to help us better understand your experience with medical cannabis, prior education around the topic, and interest in future clinical education related to medical cannabis. To learn more and to take the survey, use the link in the show description. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Michael Levinson. 
Good afternoon, Michael. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I know it's it's been a while since last we spoke. I believe it was all the way back in episode 11 of the podcast. Yeah, and on that episode, we talked a lot about the legal considerations for medical providers when recommending medical cannabis, which was a lot of great information. I encourage everyone to, to go back and listen to that episode in the archives. But since then, there's there's been a lot of updates to cannabis law, and I wanted to bring you back to talk about some of those. One in particular is Ryan's Law, which was just recently signed into law in California. And uh, I was hoping that you could tell us a bit about Ryan's Law. Who is Ryan? And what does this law mean for healthcare providers? So Ryan uh, was Ryan was, unfortunately, Ryan Bartell, who was the son of the mayor of Santee, which is a town in uh, San Diego County. He had stage four cancer. I believe it was pancreatic cancer. He was ill. And in the later stages of his life, uh, was in hospital or essentially hospice care, and he was being given a whole lot of opioids. And it put him in a position where, I mean, essentially... Um, he was not going to live a whole lot longer. So they were giving him the opioids essentially to make him uh, comfortable, which is commonly called palliative care. And, uh, but it was, what it was doing, uh, according to his family, was that it was making him so basically incoherent and out of it that they couldn't talk to him. They couldn't relate to him. And that was breaking their hearts, basically. Um, It was a very difficult situation. They tried to have the uh, medical facilities that he was in allow him to use cannabis uh, so that he would be more coherent and then, <clears throat> excuse me, perhaps not suffering as much pain, but it would, uh, would not be suffering as much pain, but would be coherent. And they could relate to him so he wouldn't be just completely wasted all the time. The answer was no. And eventually he had to, they, his family moved him to a facility in, in Washington state, which did allow it. Although I don't know that it was a matter of legal uh, wrangle, uh, wrangling, so to speak, they just found a place that would let him do it. Okay. And he initially, this got started a couple of years ago and uh, there was some back and forth about how it would be regulated in terms of, uh, whether it would uh, require facilities that get Medicare uh, benefits, et cetera, to do it, whether it would be voluntary or allow them to do it, require them to do it if they get certain benefits. And so the governor at the time felt that it was kind of too restrictive of healthcare facilities that were otherwise beneficial. Um, so it was, he didn't sign it. So they brought it back in essentially the same form and uh, this time around, and they sort of made it, uh, they had to write in a, uh, a provision that basically the major change was that a f- they kind of put in a protection for facilities that they cannot be punished essentially if they allow this. They cannot be restricted from getting state Medicaid and federal Medicare and Medicaid benefits, which apparently was not sufficiently strong in the first version of it. Otherwise, it's essentially the same. And it says that healthcare facilities um, cannot prevent someone from using cannabis as palliative care if they are a terminal patient. Okay, and terminal is defined as one year of life, uh, the pro- a prognosis of of one year of life essentially from the time that the prognosis is made, and um, it doesn't allow smoking or vaping. So presumably oils and inhaling, uh, like the, uh, you know, those uh, tornado inhalers, those appear to be allowed under the law, which is a very good way of getting cannabis into your system um, without burning it, essentially. And I think that the, even, even with vaping, it is essentially considered burning it. And there is some form of smoke that comes off. You know, it's funny in a way, and this is a little bit of an aside, but during the pandemic, you know, you I mean, at least I have, you know, you're home more, even though you're working, sometimes you watch old movies on Turner classic movies. It's amazing. You see movies from the the fifties and even into the sixties, people in the hospital are smoking. They're smoking in, in hospital rooms. They're smoking in the hallways and hospitals. You, you look at this now and you're like, it's like an entirely different universe. 
Um, but in any event, so that this uh, cannabis uh, use must be allowed uh, as long as they follow the rules. Um, but it's in terms of not smoking, not vaping. Um, they can't be uh, restricted from certain federal benefits as a result of it. And it's, it's essentially what, what it really boils down to is it is essentially hospice, palliative care for people in hospice, which is essentially end stage, you know, the, the, there's a end of life uh, uh, stage, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I just want to clarify here. So is it that the law is saying that hospitals have to allow cannabis use or just that they won't be punished if they allow it? So the question is whether uh, healthcare facilities must allow the use of cannabis. And the answer to that is yes. They are prohibited from restricting it as long as there is a certain type of healthcare facility. And the, the type of healthcare facility is uh, most healthcare facilities uh, that receive any Medicare or Medicaid benefits. Okay. So real quick, a, kind of an interesting analogy is something called the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act of 1986 that requires uh, what's called stabilizing care for any hospital or emergency room that receives Medicare or Medicaid funds. So it's, it, that is the um, uh, requirement that they have to allow this. They don't have to provide it, but they have to allow it to be done as long as those the restrictions uh, of not allowing smoking and vaping are allowed or followed rather. Excellent. Well, that's, I mean, that's certainly a positive being able to allow patients to be using this medicine in that setting. And I'm curious if hospitals wanted to take it one step further and allow patients to use cannabis, patients who aren't terminally ill, are they able to do that? Are they allowed to do that? Or is that getting into a bit of a gray area? Well, they, they certainly could if they wanted. I think that, that this law requires them to do it, but only for hospital, for palliative care, for hospice patients or terminally ill patients. The answer is yes, they could certainly allow it, which presumably was what happened. I mean, we're talking about nationwide now. That's what happened when Ryan went to Washington State. It was allowed. Mm -hmm. Um, you will, you'll be hard pressed to find any facilities that will really do it though. Uh, right. They, it, they had to, they, essentially, they were actually part of the lobbying in favor of this law so that they could say, well, Hey, you know, we're forced to, we don't have any choice because they feel that the, the terrible fear amongst healthcare providers is that they're going to lose their FDA approval for dispensing uh, prescription medications if they get involved in this. And that's the other protection that they have out of this law. Too. Okay. So that makes sense. So the hospital doesn't really want to stick their own neck out there uh, well, in fears yes. of getting well, chopped off by the feds. Yeah, the medical field is very risk averse, <laughs> to say the least. Understandably so. Um, to your knowledge, are there other states that have similar laws like this on the books? I'm aware of, of two. One is Maine and the other is Connecticut. And uh, they actually kind of beat Cali excuse me, California to the punch on this, which is a little unusual because California usually has so far has been the leader. Right. California passed the first medical marijuana law in 1996. And um, it's a little, I think that California would have had it first probably, but, it, but because of the quirky way that it was worded initially, and that's why the governor vetoed it. I mean, I, you know, it's quite clear to me that, you know, that, and in his veto statement, he said, look, Every part essentially said, every part of me wants to do this. This is a terrible injustice. This needs to be corrected. And so they basically corrected it. Excellent. Yeah. Um, no, and you made a good point there that California does seem to be the leader in a lot of these laws. And now that this has been put in place, is it unreasonable to think that other states might follow suit? Um, no, it's not unreasonable. Um, if the Moore Act comes in, is passed, especially then all states will. I'm not holding out a lot of hope for that, though. Uh, that's the federal uh, law that essentially mimics Prop 64 in California and essentially decriminalizes. It's the Marijuana Opportunity Revitalization and Expungement Act. And it basically stimulates... Um, the cannabis business stay, uh, nationwide by expunging a lot of records, uh, by decriminalizing it, 
and by you know setting up a tax structure that sort of makes it uh, incentivized for people to get involved in this business the government claims it's going to get all this money from taxes um you know that remains to be seen um for uh, if you i'll tell you why it's i mean the other big news lately in california isn't just this hospice law but the the degree to which the black market is flourishing and uh, that has to do with the fact that they've, frankly, have overtaxed cannabis. Sure. And so the black and since because it's been decriminalized, which was on, certainly on its face, a good thing, decriminalized in the n entirely for certain possession amounts, but also reduced to misdemeanor, almost all the offenses relating to uh, growing and selling cannabis that used to be felonies. So uh, basically, the penalties are pretty low and the police don't really care. So there's a lot of illegal growing and selling going on and uh you know they take down these you know you read they're taking down enormous grow operations and and the, the law enforcement is saying look we're getting we're barely even scratching the surface of this because we right. know what's out there but that's a, that's another subject for another day if they think if the federal authorities think that they're going to do away with the black market by taxing cannabis a lot that <laughs> if california is any any uh model the answer to that is no not not quite yeah well, that's that's interesting i hadn't thought of that that you know decriminalizing and reducing the penalties um would sort of enable the black market well if you're if you're it, it enables the black market because uh it's it's cheaper basically right. to buy it on the black market and depending on what you're looking for okay if you're just looking for basically smokable flour um you know, particularly if you that, frankly, there's another uh, fact that's been reported lately in California, which is that use of cannabis did not increase when props has not increased since the institutionalization of Prop 64. So in other words, it's legal. So you think, well, gosh, no, it's legal. So many more people must be doing it, right? right. Well, actually, no, uh, apparently not. And which would imply that what you really had, frankly, which is what probably people in this industry knew, or that is to say people who studied this knew, which is that you had a, well, about 80% uh, of the product is used by about 20% of the users. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you have this sort of relatively small uh, group of um, you know, I'm going to use this term affectionately, but potheads. Okay. There's just a certain bunch of people just smoke pot a lot of pot. Okay. That's just kind of their thing, you know, and it's probably quite frankly, if you looked at the liquor industry, you'd probably see about the same thing. Maybe 20% of the people use about 80% of the product. They're just people that are just like drinkers, you know, and then there are the occasional users, you know, whatever parties, the occasional, but there's drinkers about 20, maybe 20, 25%. I mean, and, and so those people were using it pretty heavily. I'm talking about cannabis now before it was ever legal sure they have supply lines they know how to get it the penalties are minimal um you know they don't really need to go to the to the legal marketplace to buy it they do it maybe because it's convenient and it's less risky um which brings to mind several other issues about why really the medical marijuana industry should be doing uh should be kind of flourishing better in a in, in a different way um but you didn't ask me to touch on that subject, so I won't, but I will. Okay. No, <laughs> so, it's, uh, I, I feel free to. I mean, we like to try to well, see what the conversation leads the, us. Well, one of the questions you put to me was, I think you said whether doctors could recommend specific products. Sure. And the answer to that is they can recommend them. So they can, what I advise my clients to say is that, uh, you know, this particular product has been beneficial to my patients. My patients have told me this. I have found that my patients have benefited from this particular product. And they can even say a brand name. What, what doctors cannot do is, is profit from, at least in California, they can have no financial relationship with any producer or seller of, of a cannabis product, okay? Which is um, kind of wrong. It shouldn't be that way. I, it's, I, the, the, the impetus behind it is perhaps understandable, which, but it's just wrong because the idea was, well, look, you know, really what it is, is it, it stems from the idea of almost all of these laws that we're talking about stem from the idea 
really, that this is all bad and wrong, but we might allow it in certain situations. So, for right. example, take the hospice law, okay? Well, that was really the way that the medical cannabis law was pitched initially in 1996. It's called the Compassionate Use Act, okay? And part of the way it was pitched, I remember hearing it on public radio when it was being debated, you know, before the vote. Advocates, I mean, understandably so, but what they were saying was, well, you know, basically, look, these are people that have really serious illnesses, cancer, AIDS, you name it. They're on their, quite frankly, they're on their way out anyway. Do you really care if they get high for a few months before they pass away? Okay. Mm. And, it, you know, there was, that was part of the pitch. And so people were like, well, no, I guess not. You know, it seems perfectly fine. Now, that certainly, that was what was used to get Prop 215 passed. That was not the only thing, but that was a big part of it. Okay. It was, I mean, you know, come on, do you really care that much about that for end of life? Uh, stories, you know? Well, um, obviously, there's way more medic medical benefit to cannabis, okay? It also stems, and, and uh, this I have many of my clients who are doctors and friends and people at conferences I've spoken to, you know, I've, I've asked the basic question, okay, of them is, do you think that most doctors think that the only real medicinal benefit to cannabis is that it intoxicates people. It gets them kind of off and therefore they just don't feel their pain or they don't care about what they're going through. And almost universally, they say, yes, that is what most doctors think. Okay? Wow. And that is a shame, okay? Because that, you know, it's sort of like, well, that, and that really, I think, is the impetus now behind this hospice care uh, law. For sure, um, the story of Ryan Bartell and why it was, uh, why that law was needed is a compelling story. Okay. And for sure, nobody thinks uh, that there's anything wrong with him using it, but it shouldn't be. I just think it's not right to just think that um, that's the only benefit that it could really have. Okay. Um, and, and there's way, way more medicinal benefit to it. Persuading people gets harder though. When you think, I, I think when it's, it's sort of sold as well, it's just, you know, for end of life and, you know, certainly because people think, well, you know, why not? Okay. When there's way, way more to it than that. So getting back to that, what, getting back to the, the, the question of whether doctors can endorse products, you know, when you go to get um, certain surgeries or prosthetics or what have you, you're using doctor name techniques and you get a doc, you know, you get the you know, uh, 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 Dr. Job elbow prosthetic, you have the Job surgery technique done and he gets, he, well, he's no longer alive. This is the guy that invented the Tommy John surgery, right. you know, right. well, there's a curl and Job clinic. And when they do their surgery, you, they do the curb, uh, the, uh, the Job technique they do, uh, they have their named prosthetics that they use and nobody thinks there's anything wrong with it. These are approved products, they're approved techniques and procedures, and they develop them, why shouldn't they get money for them? Okay. Sure. That's for, for, I think, obvious, but not so good reasons that is not allowed in the cannabis business. So doctors cannot develop a product that they think is really beneficial. They cannot develop a either an oil or, a, <clears throat> excuse me, a vape product or what have you that they've, you know, clinically developed in their practice that they think is beneficial, put their name on it and have it sold. They just can't do that. And again, obviously, the, the, going back to the fact that, in, that use did not increase when it was legalized, the theory behind why doctors aren't allowed to do that is because it goes back to the idea, again, that this is bad and that we should only allow it in certain circumstances. So doctors shouldn't be in the business of, you know, of benefiting from recommending this product, because after all, only a very few people should really need it medically anyway. And we're afraid that if more and more people start using this, things are just going to go haywire. Okay. Well, the first thing we found out is they legalized it completely, right? Basically. I mean, it's totally, it's not unlawful to possess it just up to certain amounts and just it hyper technically it's never been illegal to use it okay but uh in california 
But um, the point being that it was fully legalized, use did not go up. So what makes you think that doctors, uh, you know, sort of approving the use of it is going to make it go up? I mean, people that are going to use it in, in, you know, to large, in large degrees, aren't going to wait around for a doctor recommendation for it. Mm -hmm. What doctors need or what patients need are products from doctors, uh, I think, that are recommended that doctors know are good, that doctors have developed themselves, and that really do achieve the goals that they're after. One of the biggest problems that a lot of doctors have, particularly when it comes to the more complicated medicines for child uh, illnesses, is a consistent supply of, of the products that they think are the, the best ones, the ones that work the best for the patients. And by the way, the ridiculous prices that have to be paid for some of these things. Sure. Um, and that's due to the, the idea, that it's really based on the idea that this should be scarce, okay? Scarcity drives a price. This should be scarce. This should be highly regulated. This should be, you know, this is all very dangerous and should only be allowed in certain circumstances. And the, and the reality is it's kind of the other way around. It's really not that dangerous. And uh, it's more, far more beneficial than dangerous. And uh, it really, if it's used appropriately, I'm talking about oils and, and uh, mm -hmm. particularly cannabis oils for and largely for children or people with uh, uh, cancer, those things um, are not dangerous and they are, they are beneficial. And there's no reason why doctors shouldn't A, be able to benefit from having their names on those products as long as they think they're beneficial and uh, and B, uh, they shouldn't be, there's no reason they shouldn't be used in hospitals. Now going, one of the questions you also asked me was whether pharmacies, right. one of the questions you sent me was that whether pharmacies would stock these, uh, hospital pharmacies would stock these products. That will not happen in California because they can only be sold through licensed uh, distributors and retailers, cannabis licensed distributors and retailers. And I'm not aware that any hospital pharmacy has one of those. There, you have to have a specific license to be a cannabis retailer from the, from the Department of Cannabis Control. And that's it. So it would be supplied by, a, well, more than likely the way it would work actually is uh, if someone's really sick and they're in the hospital, they will have someone designated as their primary caregiver who can go to the, to the cannabis dispensary, buy it, and then bring it to them and dispense it to them there, which is yeah. what they do for people when they're home and very, very sick anyway. Mm -hmm. Okay. But now so, can the hospital physician recommend cannabis for their patients? I know they don't, they don't technically yes. prescribe it, right? They recommend it. Um, would they right. be willing or able to do that as well? Or do they have to actually seek out a, a different doctor to get it from well, you, them? Or? Well, you don't have to be a special designated cannabis doctor. In Texas, okay. you actually do. Mm -hmm. And maybe in some other states. But in California, you do not. You just have part of one of the things that Prop 64 did that was passed in 2016 is it said that you, a physician who recommends cannabis has to be now has to be the attending physician, which means that you have to take responsibility for their care. Okay. Wow. What that really means is not a whole lot. Okay. Really, what, what it was was an impetus um, that the impetus for that was that there were basically, frankly, a lot of sort of fly by night doctors that, you know, pay me 40 bucks and I'll write you a letter so you can, you know, get away with having cannabis. But technically in California, it need the, the recommend, it can be a recommendation or approval. Okay. And the approval part really goes back to the real basis of the Compassionate Use Act, which was there's a lot of people that were already using cannabis. And so they wanted to be able to have a conversation with their physician and say, I'm already doing this. Do you think it's okay? And all the doctor, legally speaking, all the doctor had to do was say yes. And then that person was considered a qualified cannabis patient in California because they had an approval. It need not have been in writing. It still does not have to be in writing. It just has to be demonstrable uh, if need be. It was, it was put in, this law was passed in 1996 as a defense, never had to be in writing. The reason it was put in writing when it was, was so that, it, well, at the time there really were no dispensaries, but then there was a new law that was passed in 2004 uh, that sort of created the idea of dispensaries and collectives. And they wanted to have something in writing before they would sell you anything. 
before that, the, the idea was that you'd have something in writing if you ever got stopped by an officer and you could show it to the officer and maybe, you know, they'd let you go. Okay, well, that didn't pan out so well, <laughs> but at least gave you some way of claiming that you already had this and yeah. you could take it to a judge. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the question of, you know, lawfully possessing an ounce of marijuana when you had a doctor's recommendation was litigated endlessly until well into the 2000s when it, it need not have been, but it was. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I did what I did want to go back a bit to the, this whole idea of, you know, physicians or medical professionals having their name or having their own products. Um, and I think that your, your analogy was great with the, with the prosthetics and the, in the different um, procedures. Um, but what about, I mean, if I'm going to play devil's advocate, what about um, pharmaceuticals? Um, are they able to, are they able to do that as well? Or is there some sort of limitations around that? I don't know that they have their names on them. But they are allowed to endorse them, and they are allowed to uh, uh, profit from them. Mm -hmm. uh, they are allowed. That is allowed. There's a website called I think it's. I'm gonna make, I'm gonna double check it right now, but I think it's called Dollars for Docs. <laughs> yes, Dollars for Docs, and it lists out or is it yeah Dollars for Docs. Well, it used to be Dollars for Docs. Bonnie Bonnie Goldstein turned me onto it, and I can't. Uh, if I, I just looked it up, that doesn't seem to be right, but she knows about it. It's a, it's a website that lists how much money various doctors make from the pharmaceutical products that they endorse, okay? Mm. And from the uh, uh, over-the-counter uh, uh, products that they endorse. And there are doctors making serious, you know, millions off of this. Yeah. Um, so pharmaceuticals, uh, you can, doctors, many of them can have, uh, they can have investments in the companies that make them and sell them. They can endorse them. They can recommend them to their patients. As long as they, if they recommend them to their patients um, or prescribe them to the patients, there are certain disclosures that have to be made. So, you know, I have an investment in this company, but I believe it's the right thing for you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, the entire pharmaceutical, you know, selling uh business right is uh you know that's a whole that's a subject perhaps for a whole nother sure day. yeah and i so, know there's anti-kickback and all those other sorts of things put in place right try to they are that. <laughs> <laughs> well not to mention just uh you know this is something that i didn't know i guess i maybe i'd read it but i didn't know until recently you know they they hire super attractive oh, yeah. you know, women to go around to the doctors and get them to buy their products and recommend, you know, recommend and, and prescribe them to their patients, you know, and, and, and the other, you know, if you're watching old, old movies during the pandemic, you know, the other thing you're watching is endless advertising for pharmaceutical medications on television. Okay. Ask your doctor for, and, and I, I, I've asked, I have friends who are doctors and clients and I ask them, do people really do that? They say hundred percent, they do it. Mm. Because I was under the impression it would sort of be the other way around. The doctor asks you what's wrong. And then, <laughs> but apparently, I mean, obviously they wouldn't do this advertising if it wasn't paying off for them big time. So, so, at, you know, ask your doctor for this is, uh, and many of the, and there are doctors that have, they're allowed to have investments in these companies. Okay. Oh. And I, I'm not, I'm not suggesting there's necessarily anything wrong with that as long as the disclosures are made and so on and so forth. And if they are approved medications, uh, you know, I, I guess I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Now, when it comes to opioids, okay, I think there's a restriction against that. And uh, they're not supposed to have any uh, direct interest in opioids because there's are addicting medications, okay? Um, but the way in which those were sold to physicians and the, you know, the, just the monumental deceptions that were undertaken by the pharmaceutical companies to grow and sell this, these products and the number of people that have been harmed from it. I mean, I mean, it, I, I mean, it just pales in comparison to anything that could even ever be done. The, you could, you could, uh, you know, take the cannabis industry's worst abuses and you're not even scratching the surface of what's happened with the opioid problems. So, Absolutely. Um, and, and I think we're hopeful in a lot of ways that cannabis can maybe help solve some of the damage that the opioid crisis had has provided um well right talk with several doctors who, who think that there's there's a path for that 
Right. Well, that's, uh, yes, that's correct. To, to, to cure, to sort of be the stopgap or cure uh, addiction. That was the, that actually was the impetus behind Ryan's law was to find some a palliative sure. care that was a, approved in hospital uh, use that wasn't an opioid. One of the first clients I had when I started doing marijuana cases was a guy that got his knee all messed up uh, in Afghanistan as a soldier, and he was growing his own plants here in yeah. California, and he got raided. And, and he said, he said, look, he said, this, the reason I'm doing this is because the VA will give me the opioids all day long. He said, but I can't do anything when I take that stuff. I can't work. I can't think. I can barely function. Mm. Um, it certainly helps my knee from feeling better, but I just don't want to be that way. I want to be able to do a lot more. And he said, does marijuana, marijuana probably isn't as good for pure pain management. It's probably not quite as good as that, but it takes enough of the edge off, but I can still function. And I'm thinking to myself, sounds like a good plan. We actually beat that case. Okay. Um, based on medicinal use grounds and also because the search warrant was bad, but this guy had, this is a long story, but this guy only had like 12 plants. Okay. Mm. Uh, but it was enough for his own use. Uh, yeah. But, you know, in those days, you know, this was post uh, prop uh, uh, 215. And even after what was commonly called Senate bill 420, total misunderstanding that you're only supposed to have uh, so many plants and they had to be all they couldn't be mature and blah, blah you know, all of this ridiculousness uh, but all the police had to do was see one plant and they could get a search warrant and raid your property and take everything you had wow those wow. days are those days are pretty much gone well that's good <laughs> well, now well let me let me correct that it's good except in california you can only grow six plants on your own now okay. in almost almost everywhere so it's good and it's not so good. Then they fine you hundreds of dollars for each plant over six. And that's another issue, but we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> <laughs> so coming back to this, um, Ryan's law sure. and, you know, it is limited to terminally ill patients, which, you know, we've talked about some of the reasons why we think that might be the case, but does the passage of this, um, is a sort of leave the door open that they might expand it to include all hospital patients at some point? Well, I think, I think, yes, in the same way that, you know, even when Props 215 was passed in 1996, there was a lot of people saying, you know, they would not necessarily say this out loud because they were afraid of, I always, I love the phrase from the movie, I think it was Ghostbusters 2, when uh, uh, Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver are having dinner at the Tavern on the Green in New York, okay, the fanciest restaurant in town, and then Dan Aykroyd, and uh, the other guy, I can't think of his name. They come running in and they're talking about the slime and everything is going crazy. And Bill Murray says, boys, you're scaring the straights. Okay. Well, I think they were afraid of scaring the straights by coming out and just saying what they really believed, which is like, this is step one. This, mm -hmm. There were people behind the scenes that were saying that in 1996, but they didn't want to scare the straights. So they said, okay, you know, this is just for the really sick people, blah, blah, blah. And then slowly but surely, it took 20 years, 20 years until Prop 64 passed. Now, Prop 64 has a whole panoply of problems that is, can be associated with it. But it functionally decriminalizes the possession of marijuana up to certain amounts in California, which was something that in, at least until 1996, frankly, nobody really thought would ever happen. It was always talked about. It was always talked about when I do other kinds of presentations, I cite to a, an episode of the old TV show Dragnet from 1968, in which a guy says he's being harassed by Sergeant Friday about possessing marijuana. And he says, oh, in five years, when all the kids start wearing ties and working, they're going to and get into seats of power. They're going to legalize this. You'll be able to walk into a store and to buy it just like a pack of cigarettes or a bottle of liquor. 1968. Well, it took a while. It took you know, <laughs> almost yeah. 30 years from there just to get medical marijuana approved. The stigma against it is really strong. That's the that when I'm talking about how people think it's bad and we should just let it be used in certain circumstances. That's what I'm talking about, the stigma. Um, but it's true that in 96, people behind the scenes were saying, look, this is step one. They, 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 there were many people that felt that, that was, this was what was going to 
lead to some form of full-on legalization and selling it in stores and so on and so forth. That for sure was the case with uh, Senate Bill 420, which passed in two, excuse me, 2004, which allowed for collectives and, and essentially the, some form of commerce as it related to cannabis. It was all had to be medical. And now it's just an industry, okay? Now it's, it's perhaps overregulated and there's contradictions in the laws, which is all true. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but by the way, just to, I'm talking primarily about California. The one difference between Prop 215, which is the Compassionate, U excuse me, Compassionate Use Act, and Prop 64, the Adult Use Act, which is arguably the sort of period at the end of the sentence that was started in 1996, is that Prop 215 cannot be amended by the legislature. The only way any part of it can be changed is by voter initiative, okay? Mm -hmm. Because it was a voter initiative that said that. Prop 64 is different. Prop 64 was a voter initiative, but specifically allows the legislature to amend it so that each little part, so that it is not necessarily part of the California constitution and therefore only changed by voter initiative. So what it means is, the, the gist of that is, and what was being said sort of, frankly, you know, sotto voce by the people that put that on the ballot was, okay, we don't like, there's some stuff in here that we don't really love, but we can change it through our legislators. We don't have to go through this process anymore. This is, you know, this was the tectonic, we're going to move the tectonic plate here by making it fully legal. There's going to be some, some earthquakes that are going to need to be dealt with down the road, but those are going to be more manageable. This tectonic plate needed to be moved. And I think even that's why normal which is normally, uh, you should pardon the pun, would not necessarily go along with that. They'd be like, no, this doesn't have, they really, they really debated whether they wanted to support, you know, this much restriction, this much restriction in this form of restriction, but they got so much good out of it. And they also got the ability to change it to the legislature just through straight lobbying, which is, you know, kind of the old fashioned way to change mm -hmm. the law, rather than having to put everything back on the ballot, have... The voters are not, wouldn't, they, they did a whole bunch of surveys and they knew the voters weren't going to do another one of these. This was going to yeah. be it. Okay. So they, uh, that's, that's probably the biggest sort of uh, upside in a sense of the legacy of Prop 64, the full on legalization. Uh, so that isn't necessarily answering the question you asked me, but that's. <laughs> uh, no, but it, it brings to, you know, an interesting question. I mean, you, you talked sure. about, you know, back in 1968, where they were talking about how, you know, eventually this is going to be sold in stores, <clears throat> you know, we're slowly getting there. I mean, you still can't go to 7-Eleven and, and buy a, a pack of marijuana cigarettes, but, you know, we're slowly getting there. Um, but it's state by state. So, but what about federally? And you, you touched on the MORE Act earlier. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that. Like, you know, what is that really? How does that compare to... Um, the laws that have been passed in California and is it does this act really have a shot of of making it through Congress I know that there's been other bills like this that have come up they've gotten out of the house but died in the Senate is well there's going to be a lot more of that or is there a reason to get more excited about this one well here here's here's the the what I think is the real uh bottom line here okay which is um you know the the Congress passed what they've called the Farm Act um, a few years ago. I forget, I have to say, I don't remember exactly the year that it went into effect, which essentially legalized the growing and selling of hemp. Okay. And the, the real reason that they, that Republicans went along with this, there's a couple of reasons, one of which is a lot of them come from hemp growing states. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly enough, hemp is, uh, you know, frankly, not a terribly profit, the margin on hemp isn't great. Okay, but it's good work and it, you know, I mean, it's legitimate industry and it's got a lot of support in, in uh, farm states and so it passed. But the, the, the real reason it was sort of, you know, sold as being okay is because it doesn't get you high. It doesn't get you high. If you listen to the radio ads for all the CBD products, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get you high. It doesn't get you high. People are just afraid of what 
happens to people when they smoke marijuana. They think they're, the, 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 it, it's just the way it is, man. Uh, it goes back to reefer madness. And before that, there's, there is a, somehow there's something about getting drunk that's like, okay, okay. Right. And there's something about getting high that is just too mysterious. It's too, I don't know what, it's too frankly Mexican. It's too well, much. Yeah, as- I mean, it's cultural, right? You know, oh. our, our culture is very much based on alcohol. Oh, well, right. And, and I mean, I'm not for a microsecond suggesting that alcohol should be illegal, but yeah. the health problems and driving problems and societal problems stemming from alcohol, <laughs> I mean, forget it, right? Yeah, it's not even right. debatable. Right. None, almost essentially none of that can be associated with marijuana, but somehow it's just scarier. It's mm-hmm. scarier. It's what those, those people do. And, we, you know, the average drinker has never been able to understand it. Okay. They just can't understand, like, what does this really do for you? What does it mean? They're, it just makes people so incoherent and crazy and capable of anything and blah, blah, blah. Which, of course, just to give you a real quick example, like, example, a big part of my practice is domestic violence cases. Okay. Mm-hmm. So usually I'm talking to the potential client. He's telling me what happened. There was this argument. There was this. this. And almost always somewhere in there, the question comes up, you know, was anybody drinking? Well, yeah, you know, I had some drinks, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I can count on zero fingers, frankly, the number of times that somebody I know of got high on marijuana and committed any act of violence, let alone assaulting their spouse or their girlfriend or anybody else. Okay. Now, I'm sure there are times when they were maybe using marijuana and drinking. Okay. That certainly happens. Okay. But it, it just does not affect people in the same way. It just doesn't. Okay. Driving by that's another statistic real quick. Okay. There has been as far as anybody can say, you know, even since what nominally is the legalization of marijuana in 1996, there's been no increase in accidents relating to the use of medic- of cannabis, no accident, no increase in con- uh, arrests and convictions associated with driving under the influence of cannabis. I'm not sitting here endorsing the idea of getting stoned and driving a car. No, I'm just saying that it's really not that big a deal. Now, mix it with alcohol, then you've got a problem. Mix it with other drugs, maybe prescription medications or even illegal drugs, well, then you got a problem. Or, but alcohol all by itself, I mean, forget about it, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's just too dangerous to do. So, so um, you were asking me, I'm, I, I got uh, off on a tangent and I forgot exactly what the, the beginning the question was. The MORE Act. Oh, the uh, MORE Act, okay. Now, you would, you, would think, you would think at a certain level that this would be an, uh, 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 the kind of thing that Republicans would go for in a microsecond. States' rights, uh, libertarian, live and let live in that regard, freedom, but they don't, okay? Um, and I think the, you'd think that they'd be on board for it. And there are some that are kind of like that, the more libertarian parts of the Republican Party, okay? Democrats, I mean, which is odd because it's like with Biden, it's like he would lose no voter, no Democratic voter if he just came out and just said, yeah, it should be legal. There's not one Democratic voter now, interestingly enough, however, though, the Kennedy family, uh, which you could arguably make the case that Biden is kind of a sort of a, for lack of a better phrase, a poor man's Teddy Kennedy, you know what I mean, uh, politically, right? I mean, he's, he's that's the kind of Democrat he is, you know, the Kennedy family is strongly opposed to the legalization of marijuana up down. But I think I, there's there's a money issue involved in that. They're shilling for pharma. They're shilling for other. That's my belief. So, so. The Democrats should just go for it. The reason the Republicans don't do it is what I think. This is what I think. And I'll give you an example. One of the first cases I had that really involved medical cannabis was a guy was he was uh, somebody else actually set the case up for me. But this guy was on probation. And the question was, would the judge let him use medical cannabis while he was on probation? Okay. so we brought the doctor in and the doctor said that he uses this. It it makes him feel much better, improves his health, blah, blah, blah. And this is what the judge said. The judge says, you know, I understand that using this cannabis makes him feel better, but I just can't understand why I should allow him to use it. 
why he should be allowed to use this medicine just because it makes him feel better. Okay. Okay. Now take a step. Right. Right. You shook your head, right? You're like, well, wait a minute. Medicine makes him feel better. Let's see. Hmm. Is there some other purpose? For medicine? That seems to be the idea. That would be the, yes, I think that's part of it. And, and I, I remember discussing this with somebody and they said, well, basically what that is, is that's the Puritan ideal in a, that still infuses its way through so much of American society, which is you're not supposed to feel better if you've done something wrong. So if you did something wrong legally until you've, you know, purged that through out of your system through probation, then you can feel better by using the cannabis. Okay. Or frankly, you're not supposed to feel better unless you earn it somehow. Okay. Unless you've done something hard and positive for yourself. Okay. And that's what, and, and so what really is, I think, at the heart of the opposition, this the, there is this stigma, which is cultural, but a big, that is to say, ethnically cultural, right? You know, but it's also that there is a certain mentality in American life that says that anything good that you get, okay, you have to earn, you have to do something hard to get. And it's just considered too indulgent, too self-indulgent to be able to grow this plant, light it on fire, suck it into your lungs and automatically feel better. What have you done to earn that feeling? Now, I don't think they ask the same question when they hand you the bottle across the, uh, uh, the you know, at the liquor store. I don't think there's any question about that when it comes to, you know, you're, you're watching, you know, football on television, which is nothing but a, you know, just portrayed, it's just a big party all day long. Let's just have fun, okay? And the, the number one product being advertised is beer and liquor, okay? So that's fun. What did you do? Well, it's on Sunday, okay? Which means you worked all week and it's your day off, okay? That's the thing. I'm just telling you what I've read about this. Do I agree with all this? Not necessarily, okay? But that is the, that's the difference, okay? The idea, it, and it's also, it, it's seen as unpredictable, okay? So we don't really know what people will do when they do this. So Republicans who uh, are much more opposed to the Moore Act than Democrats and, and in the Senate until unless they get rid of the filibuster, which is a whole nother kettle of fish, right? Mm. Um, it'll probably meet a stone wall because it'll just be seen as too indulgent to this, too left wing to the, you know, and put aside the, the, the you know, monetary benefits um, just in not having to enforce the laws. Now, if they don't... Over they will undoubtedly overtax it, um, but you know they overtax liquor. Here's a here's a good uh, trivia point for you. Okay, in uh, during prohibition, there were two ways to get liquor legally, lawfully. One was from your priest or rabbi for sacrimonial purposes, and the other was you could get a prescription for alcohol, uh, and you could and that is those are. Uh, the the, med the medicinal part of it uh, is what led to the you know growth of a couple of major uh, 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 drugstore chains, but it is also uh, kind of the same thing with cannabis. You could you can get uh, uh, during prohibition the only way to get it legally starting in '96 was a medical recommendation from a doctor, but when prohibition ended, alcohol prohibition ended, alcohol use went down. Okay, and the reason was because it was harder to get. It was easier to get during prohibition than it was than it has been since then. Now that right. may have changed now because, you know, California, for example, you can buy liquor anywhere, 7-Eleven, CVS, it doesn't matter. For many, many, many years, and it's still in many Midwestern states, which still are sort of more Puritan, you can only buy it at state, excuse me, state sanctioned liquor stores, and they have much more restricted hours. Those all go back to, you know, the, the you know, sort of blue laws and the restricted yeah. So that way here in Massachusetts, you can only buy um, even beer and wine. You can only buy it's not state owned or state managed liquor stores, but you need do need to have a license. You can't get it at the uh, grocery store or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, and, and and probably until not that long ago, they were probably closed on Sunday. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Isn't that, isn't but, that... they, but not in um, but not in New Hampshire. So everyone would right. just drive up to New Hampshire and, and get their beer on Sundays. Well, I, I grew up in Minnesota, right? 
And, you know, that's what everybody did as they went into Wisconsin to get what they needed when, when everything was restricted. Um, it used to be actually, I mean, this is really kind of off the subject. Uh, it used to be that fo local football game, pro football games were blacked out. Okay. You couldn't, even if they were sold out. So you had to drive someplace else to go watch them if you wanted to. I don't know if that was true in New England, okay, but within a certain radius of the of the stadium, you had to go somewhere else. So the taverns, right in the on the Wisconsin border with Minnesota, were just did a land office business every Sunday because they could drive there to watch the Viking games, okay. Yeah, uh, th that that ship sailed a long time ago. Now, I mean, <laughs> right. So one more question before I let sure. you go, because I know we have a hard stop here. Or yeah. do you, do you want to cut it off here? Or um, shoot the question at me, and you can edit later if need be, I guess. But go ahead. Okay. One more question before I let you go. Going back to the to the Moore Act, I think you've you pretty much dashed our hopes there. Which yeah, <laughs> I think I think you're right. But I'm wondering, kind of bringing it back to Ryan's law, is yeah. there? Do you think there might be an appetite for something that's more medically yes. focused to get so I think federally? I think I didn't mean to interrupt. I think what they're going to do federally is I think the way that they're really going to do it is they're going to do it sort of piecemeal. So the first thing that they absolutely have to do and that I think actually Republicans will go along with eventually is allow banking to be used mm. because that is just just the, 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 the contradiction there is so ridiculous. The fact that you have this legal business, but you can't really use a bank. It's just creates way too much trouble. And I think that even Republicans are going to be like, OK, we'll allow that. OK. Um, and the, the other thing I think that will come would be something like it would the way that they would do it is they would not restrict Medicare uh, payments. They would not restrict Medicaid payments. In other words, there would be no federal sanction put aside criminal law, no federal sanction for the restriction of certain uses. They would not. They would say that it wouldn't affect their DEA licenses and so on to allow. Pal but I think they'll I think they'll do. I mean, if, if you can't get past the idea of palliative care. In California, I don't think you're going to get past it with a senator from, uh, you know, Mississippi. I mean, that's just ain't going to happen. You know what I mean? And yeah. and and that's what I so so I think that yes, and wise legislators are working on those things. Um, but and and they'll usually what happens to really move the ball on something like this? There has to be some really publicly recognized injustice. I mean, the 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 injustice of Ryan's parents is what right. it took that one sort of very identifiable heartbreaking obvious injustice there is what led to that um sort of you know just people complaining so to speak without some dramatic you know single case or a couple of single cases usually doesn't get that job done all right well okay. thanks again michael for taking my, the time and hope my pleasure i hope to see you out at camid uh this may oh yeah yeah i'm looking forward to that i'm looking forward to that yeah, it's been a long wait. <laughs> well, uh, all good things come to those who wait. So there we go. That's right. We'll see you soon. All right. Be well. Bye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael Levinson. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed and thanks again to our sponsor, the Cannabis Center of Excellence. Our next episode will drop October 27th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, please do check out CanMedEvents.com to view the CanMed 2022 schedule, explore the CanMed archive, listen to previous podcast episodes, and sign up for email alerts. If social media is more your thing, you can stay connected with us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Speaking of Facebook, check out the CanMed Community Facebook group. It's a great way to connect with fellow attendees and presenters in between events. And one last thing, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Doing so really helps the podcast reach more listeners. Okay, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and please do join us for the next CanMed Coffee Talk.